Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialist, Giles Gale, Theo Chapsalis and John Nebruzzi. Before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to remind you, if you like this podcast, to hit the like button and don't forget to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. All right, everyone, welcome back. Happy New Year. I hope you all had a good break if you managed to get some time off. Uh, Markets have really hit the ground running this week. We've had lots of data, FOMC minutes and, and fairly big market moves. So Without further ado, let's get into this week's discussion. Uh, Jan, I'm going to start with you because we had the FOMC minutes last night. Uh, We're recording this on Thursday. Um, So we had those on Wednesday night. And it's really, I would say, uh, that that has kind of led the tone for markets over um, today and, and last night in the US. So markets took those minutes fairly hawkishly. Um, what really did we learn from them? I guess particularly the focus was on um, the discussion around quantitative tightening or QT, as we might call it. Uh, and do you think the kind of market interpretation of, of being hawkish was was the right one? Yeah, I think the market certainly reacted in the right way. I mean, it's just hard to deny that these minutes were hawkish, more hawkish than what most people expected. For one, going into it, I was I wasn't exactly 50-50, but pretty close on like whether we're going to get anything substantial on, on quantitative tightening. We knew they were going to discuss it, but, you know, there was a chance it could have just been like a one paragraph, uh, you know, mentioning like, oh, we're looking towards reducing our balance sheet uh, in 2022. It wasn't that at all. It was none of the, you know, going to taper. We had discussions about discussing taper. You know, it was like very uh, in small, small bits. This time it was, you know, in December, they agreed on accelerating taper. And at the same meeting, they had a huge discussion about balance sheet reduction, which pretty much removes all doubt that uh, we, we are likely to see a start of, uh, of taper at some point this year. So the discussion point was very clear. They, you know, they made it clear that uh, it's in the works, it's happening in January, we'll probably face another serious debate. On the sequencing, the more extreme, the more hawkish uh, side of the aisle was kind of talking about they could hike and at the same time they could announce uh, QT. I think they sort of uh, poured a little bit cold water on that by saying that QT is going to start after the liftoff. But they did say that it's not going to take as long as the last cycle, which was about two years. That doesn't give us too much because I don't think anyone at this point expected two years between liftoff and QT. But it does tell us that it's going to come after and it could come, you know, a quarter afterwards. It doesn't have to be at like 1% or above 1% for, uh, for the federal funds rate. On the modalities, how they're going to go ahead, we didn't get, of course, the, you know, the breakdown of what they think of the speed should be, but uh, the comments, there are a couple of comments that sort of alluded that it could be, this time it could be a little bit faster. A, the size of the Fed's balance sheet compared to GDP is much larger. There's still an ongoing academic debate whether the flows or the stock, aka QE, buying or selling, or uh, the total size of the balance sheet matters more. The Fed uh, has often in the past leaned towards the size of the balance sheet mattering more. So we could argue that since the percentage of the balance sheet as the economy is much larger, they're providing more support. So there's a case there to be made that they should go faster. Additionally, they uh, pointed out that the weight average maturity of the holdings is, is lower now, which would allow them to run down faster just naturally through maturities by not reinvesting, 
bar any self-imposed caps. And finally, uh, as it has been a lot in the headlines too, we can see that there's a lot of extra liquidity in the system that reserves in the system that just get flushed back into the overnight RRP facility of the Fed. So that was also pointed out that it could be one of the reasons to say, you know, look, we have about one and a half trillion of unneeded reserves in the system right now, or at least reserves that cannot find uh, an investment in the in the alternative market. So there's plenty. And finally, and this is where I was sort of a little bit deferring with the common view that it wouldn't be, a, it could not be a problem, is that the, the, they discuss the amount of target reserves or how far should QT go. They the answer is that. They didn't have an answer. I mean, recent research has also been kind of pointing that they don't know exactly post-COVID, post this new fiscal spending, post the massive amount of uh, you know liquidity that was injected in the system. They don't know what's the exact amount of reserves that is needed for the banking system to function properly and for monetary policy to transmit effectively. But they're going to you know to keep a close eye on it. And at this point, you know, they, they have a comfortable buffer before they get to a problem. But if they go with a faster speed than last time, you know, it, it, we could see some uh, some trips in the in the path towards you know balance sheet normalization. So I think those were the the key points that we got from the. You know, it's very hawkish. See, you mentioned a little bit earlier about sequencing, kind of the timing between, um, you know, potential rate hike and then quantitative tightening, QT. Um, how does, um, I guess, and what we learned from the minutes this week leave our um, expectations for, A, the path um, of tapering from here onwards to then how we see rate hikes over, let's say, the next year or so, to then when we see, might see um, balance sheet run down. Right. So we had three going to the minutes. We had three hikes for the for the year, starting from June, September, December. We don't. We're not going to change our total amount of hikes for next year. We still think they're going to deliver three, but now adding QT in the in the equation it likely implies that they're going to use one of the, let's say if they're going to go quarterly, they're likely to use one of those uh, hike meetings for uh, for announcing quantitative tightening. So it opens the door for an earlier hike, possibly even in March. Uh, we're still actively debating this within the team too, but you know, so far uh, the possibilities are looking more and more like it towards a March. We haven't made that official call yet. But the market is also pricing 75 to 80 percent chance for a March hike, although it's still confined to uh, confined to three three and a half hikes at this point. Uh, it's just four plus QT seems a little bit excessive unless they really you know show a little bit more panicky, fast moving uh, reaction. But uh, yeah, so it, it looks like, for example, June could be the announcement or the addendum. Of, I'm sorry, the announcement for QT saying we're going to you know kind of go on and like. The end of September begins from end of September. Where all the modalities presented. All right, heard it here first, broadcasters. Um, so finally, then you know, I appreciate we're recording this as I say on Thursday. Um, so um, it might be a little bit of a harsh question to ask you, given that by the time. Uh, listeners do actually listen to this, then they probably will have the benefit of knowing what the NFP print was tomorrow on Friday. But how important do you think that print is, you know, without really asking you specifically what you think it's going to be? And, and how much might a weak print matter, I suppose, in terms of knocking the Fed off that course that you've just laid out? I think it's a little bit skewed towards strong numbers could open up room for more aggressive, justifying more aggressive reaction, more hawkish and weak numbers could just kind of be 
staying the course right now because the Fed already in the minutes also mentioned that they don't think that there's any need for accommodation at this point. They just cannot really pull, pull the plug right away at the December meeting. So they kind of made the closest thing that they thought wouldn't really spook out markets, which was announcing a, announcing a faster taper. But they don't think there's a need for accommodation. So it just opens up all sorts of different scenarios if we get strong numbers that they could go, they could go in March. I mean, the ADP numbers this week showed you know, massive beat. They're not always correlated, but if we are to judge by that, uh, these could be famous last words, but if we were to judge by that, <laughs> the NFPs could, you know, like beat and open up the room for a serious conversation for a, for a March go. All right. Well, we won't bring it up next week if they were famous last words. Don't worry. <laughs> um, okay, then moving over to Europe then, Giles, because Europe has joined the US in this, um, or European rates have joined the US in, in this big shift higher this week. Um, we're not actually that far from positive yields now in 10-year bonds. I think as, as we record this, we're about five basis points away. Um, what do you see as the kind of main drivers behind this move? And how much further do you think this can really go? Yeah, well, we got a little bit excited already this uh, <laughs> this week. I mean, I, I guess, you know, if we're honest, we're probably not going to get there today or tomorrow. Although, you know, never say never, but uh, I mean, I think that, oh yeah, obviously we've been helped a little bit by a role in the Bund. That means a new, slightly longer uh, Bund benchmark has, has come along and sort of given us a little bit of a boost up towards <laughs> zero, zero percent. But, you know, I mean, that that uh, just compensates for the fact that, you know, we were getting dragged shorter and shorter before. So, you know, fair's fair. Um, you know, listen, I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there pretty quickly. You're out, your, your question about what it is that will, you know, what, what, why it is that we've moved so far so quickly. And I think the simple answer is that we had a bit of a panic about, um, about this new variant, well, no, new old variant, now Omicron, um, in December. And, you know, over the last couple of weeks, that panic has kind of dissipated as people realized that perhaps it wasn't as disastrous as, uh, as all that and maybe didn't mean that we had to completely rewrite our forecasts um, and the whole playbook, really, for, for next year. So I think that that you know, that's a very large part of it. And you know, I think that also you know, the, the clarity of the ECB back in December, that matters. Remember, we had, you know, in fact, in our last podcast, we talked quite a lot about that. Um, you know, we've had a hawkish shift globally. And you know, I think just people in, in a very small way starting to put new risk on, right? Um, I think that most people, you know, I mean, from most of our discussions with investors last year, you know, there was a general sense that we weren't really at the, the level of yield that most people thought were necessarily aligned with the way that they actually saw the world. Simple as that. But because the second half of last year had been so painful because you know, the market had been sort of dominated by you know, these kind of positioning squeezes and you know, it was all sort of felt, you know, it was all quite tactical and tight. You know, I think people were not really expressing that. And so in, in a small way and in light markets, they've started, you know, I mean, so, so some people who have been in the office have maybe been just trying to like push it a little bit and you know, just get ahead of um, a move that they're anticipating. So what have we got now? Well, we've got um, you know, a lot of supply coming up. We, you know, I think we'll see, um, you know, I hope anyway, um, you know, the peak in for, you know, for, for this 
current wave of the pandemic. And, you know, honestly, I think that we will you know, shift from that to a, an expectation that maybe actually it sets us up quite well for a sort of you know, a less worrying time for the next several months. And we can focus on the main things, which are stronger growth, higher inflation, central banks starting to starting to do things. So that's why. <laughs> How far can oh your other question is how far can it go a lot further and I think it can, <laughs> and 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 I think it'll go quite quickly. Okay, that's good to know. Um, you touched on it a little bit there, but I guess one of the themes, well, always really for us in Europe in in Q one is about kind of front loading of supply and and how easily that can be met with a kind of wave of demand as as investors have cash to put to work at the beginning of the year. What's your view on that? this year like do you see um significant front loading and and i guess more importantly do you see that being met by um enough demand to kind of keep the market um supported or not right yeah there will be reasonably significant um front loading i mean i i think across the the non-government sector there's uh, a general understanding that the sooner you can come to the market, the better, really. And uh, no, I think most people understand that you know, it's better to try and, you know, if you've got stuff to do, better to do it when you've got the cover of the the, the, the ECB with its CSPP and PEP and so on. And um, I think that generally speaking, you know, I mean, being bearish rates isn't just a, an investor theme, it's also, you know, issuers very much have an eye on that. They're worried a little bit about their, their credit spread, but they're also worried about the, uh, the the rates dimension as well. So I think, yeah, there will be, I mean, it, it won't be dramatically different to, to, to other years, but I think that the pressure is definitely there. So yes, I think you know, non-government front loading will be pretty strong. Governments, you know, they'll probably, I mean, they'll keep roughly to, to, to the plans that they always have, but you know, and that always involves a significant degree of front loading. So, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of supply and different to last year. I mean, I, it sounds like from the, the feedback that we've got there, like there's a reasonable amount of, of cash because there wasn't a lot of primary last year. So, you know, so that's maybe a little bit of a risk to everything that I was just saying. But I think that in contrast to a certain extent to last year, people can sort of sense the turn. I mean, you know, last year at this at this stage, there was still a lot of pandemic uncertainty. There was quite a lot of macro uncertainty in general. And you know, we didn't have the, the central banks accompanying the, the turn in the same way. And so I think that you will, or at least what, you know, what I would expect is that investors will be more more patient about waiting to um, to, to to step in um, to this market, particularly at these sorts of levels. So so that's what I think will help get us to to the higher rates that we uh, that we're talking about. So just finally then, and I'm sure that this is actually a theme that we'll return to in, in future pods because, um, you know, it's still a couple of weeks away, but our minds have been focused by the fact that a date has been set this week for the Italian presidential election at the end of January. Um, that, I guess, brings about the first kind of dose of political risk for um, 2022 in Europe. Um, is this a real genuine political risk that we should be concerned about? Or is this something um, that, you know, you think might blow over quite quickly? I mean, there, there, there isn't necessarily, I mean, it, it's going to be a little bit 
I guess I was going to say messy. That's not right, quite the right word because that seems like it sort of overstates it. I mean, you know, but the the concern, of course, is that you know if Draghi becomes the next president, then yeah, I mean, on the one hand, of course, that's arguably great news from the the market's perspective because you have you know seven years more Draghi. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it unsettles the, uh, the the current coalition and maybe you know, just raises a couple of question marks about um, you know, execution risks and so on around the RRF, you know, the, the recovery fund, and and, uh, and the current sort of pro- reform progress and and so on. Um, you know, overall, we're not we're not that concerned. I mean, I, I dare say we'll come back to this because I mean you know, the the basic thing to to, to say is. That, in addition to a timeline, we don't actually have all that much information, and we always knew that this was going to be this month. <laughs> um, yeah, so Draghi's definitely the front runner. That I think probably the market's base case um, that he will take, he he will opt to try to become president, and I'm sure if he wants it, he can have it. Um, so, you know. What does that mean? I mean, I can see that BTPs are having a little bit of a struggle um, this this week, and and, and we always thought that that was on the cards, to be honest with you. But overall, you know, I think, you know, the the prospect of of, of Draghi as president plus, you know, honestly, I think it's more likely, you know, even if he does move on, um, I think it's more likely than not that the that this current you know, or some so, so some form of this current coalition will continue, and we won't have uh, elections until 2023. And that's really what the markets are, are most concerned about, because that would be the way that you would have um, a right or some, say, let's say, far right um, government come in that might then kind of upset some of the more market positive stuff that's been coming out of Italy over the last couple of uh, over the last couple of years. So let's just come back to this huh? in the next couple of weeks. I think images. <laughs> I did say it's something I think we'd come back to, but I guess that, you know, you made the key conclusion there that even if we get some kind of short term worries and the the risks that the market's really concerned about of kind of crisis and, you know, back to kind of 2018 sort of thought processes is is quite low, we think. Um, All right, then let's move over to the UK. The UK markets were closed on Monday when the Europe and the US did a lot of their movement uh, but the UK did a fair amount of catching up when we eventually came in on Tuesday. Uh, now Thea your um, well long-held long-term target for 10-year gilts has been one percent um, but we're now quite a bit higher than that and I know you've been updating your view around um, the kind of more tactical short-term outlook so perhaps you could just update all of our listeners on on what you're thinking is there around your near-term target for gilts. Absolutely so listeners will probably know that since March of 2021 we've been arguing for one percent as the equilibrium for the 10-year rate. Um, and we've kept that view when yields were at 1.2 and when yields were at 0.7%. So we thought that you know, there is not going to be something particularly uh, meaningful. There will not be a meaningful deviation. Uh, right now, we think that for the next two quarters, there will be a shift actually higher. Um, we've been outright bearish gilts since December. Um, basically, we closed any long position that we had, and then we had break-evens, so long back and break-even positions as a way to play that bearish theme. Um, 
right now and 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 this is actually the the valid point uh, we we move the focus to 1.35% for the next quarter so we talk about 20 to 25 basis points you know of an upside uh, based on where we are okay fine um, what is the rationale? What are the reasons? Well, first of all, there's been a shift in terms of politics and the language that we get from the government with regards to lockdowns. Lockdowns now seem to cost. So basically, this is significant. It's not all about the NHS and saving the system. It's about the economy. This is important, i.e. even with high cases of Omicron, a lockdown or actually restrictions that will slow down the economy uh, are less likely to we talk about the BOE and the BOE, they, they've considered the risks to inflation and the risks that are emanating from Omicron. And then in December, they delivered a hike. Well, since then, actually, the information looks even more supportive for their action, i.e. Omicron, even though it has been very prevalent, it has not been very, very disrupted. Then we have themes such as uh, issuance. And we'll be talking about the syndication in February. It will be a big theme. You know, we'll be talking about duration coming back in the market. And people who held guilds, they held guilds more as an optionality to benefit from a potential squeeze in duration, you know, in December, because you don't have supply. And if indeed Omicron was to prove, you know, to be very disruptive, then there would be, uh, you know, huge demand for guilds, but obviously this don't, did not materialize. So those who had guilds preemptively as, 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 as protection, as an instrument of protection, actually, they are getting out of it. Um, we also think that, you know, inflation will be quite a key topic and continuously high inflation. Now, will it be up at 7%, 8%, whatever? It's going to be a high number, sufficiently high for, you know, for the BOE to keep uh, um, you know, uh, talking about it. So these are the reasons why we think that there will be a move in yields um, higher. You mentioned that, um, you know, in your kind of list of rationales, but perhaps I could just dig a little bit deeper, um, given that I asked Giles the same question as well. And I think one of the key drivers is around the kind of supply outlook for the next few months, but also not just the supply outlook, but I guess, again, like with the Fed, um, you know, this idea that, um, uh, well, QE has ended and, and there may even be quantitative tightening coming in the UK as well. So how do you see, I guess, supply matched up with a, a lack of um, Bank of England support over the next couple of months? This is a fantastic question because it's actually a key point when it comes to understanding the guilt market. And for several years, we had either active QE net purchases, positive net purchases, or we had reinvestments. Now we have a situation where the BOE, to the extent that they deliver a hike in February, which is quite likely, they will not reinvest 28 billion of, um, you know, bond matures. Now, is this relevant? Well, 28 billion that are not being reinvested, that's worth 50 million a basis point. This is quite a big deal. This is, you know, the DVR that you get from two big very big syndication. So yeah, it is a big deal whether that money is reinvested or not. Um, issuance is something that will become more meaningful after April. And the reason is really because there, there has been a significant reduction in guild issuance during this financial year, but then supply issuance will become you know, more normal after April. And again, valuations will become more normal. Valuations will become you know, uh, uh, cheaper. You know. uh, now, the other point is really, if you don't have an active buyer 
the propensity for guilt to gap richer becomes smaller. So you could buy guilt and, and then hold them into the APF operation. And then, you know, if, if the APF operation, APF stands for asset purchase facility. So if the QE operation was particularly strong, uh, then you could uh, offload them. So this force is getting weaker, which is important, which means that the equilibrium for guilds for yields will be will be weaker. Now, the question that probably, you know, uh, you, you will bring up is, well, you mentioned, we mentioned all those arguments about balance sheet, balance sheet reduction and the BOE, we know that they are really, really keen to reduce the size of the balance sheet. But why not target, for example, 2% 10-year yields, right? Why 135? Because it is an increase, but it's not, you know, the increase that right now seems to grab the headlines. And to me, the important point here is that there is a lot of appetite also from the demand side, i.e., yes, we do have a fundamental backdrop and we understand that yields will have to go higher, but there is huge appetite to buy fixed income, you know, um, if it is at the right price, obviously. And, 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 and to us, it's not going to be, you know, yields just going up directly. It's, it's really, you will have levels and then you will have some, some support. And the other point is really, you know, we need to see to what extent, how fast the BOE actually does deliver those hikes. Because mind that we do have high expectations into 2021. So, oh, sorry, 2022, not 2021. <laughs> it's a new year. I still think that it's 2021. But the expectations really are for the bank rates to go to 125 at the end of the year, which is, you know, it's fairly high. So to us, there can be a case that some of those expectations uh, are being disappointed, you know. So this is why we think that, yes, the, the, the trajectory and the direction, and we need to make a case for yields higher, but we think that this is something, you know, more, um, let's say, tactical rather than uh, totally structural. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks, Theo, and, and thanks to Jars and Dan as well for joining me. We've got off to a, a, very a very exciting start to this year, and I only hope that the rest of the year uh, continues in the same way. Uh, so thank you everyone again for joining me. Uh, and just another reminder to our listeners that if you liked today's episode, um, then show your appreciation by clicking the like button and don't forget to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. And uh, another reminder as well that you can ask um, any questions to me or any of the other Bondcasters uh, that we can answer live on the pod if you just email them uh, to bondcast at natwest.com uh, and we will pick them up there. Uh, thanks again. See you next week. <laughs>